You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Nursing isn't a career, it's a calling. Answer the call with Marquette University's direct entry MSN program and find out what it means to be a Marquette nurse. A Marquette education, it holds a lot of weight. Before I graduated, I already had a job offer in the ICU. If you hold a non-nursing bachelor's degree, use it to earn your master's in nursing in less than 21 months. My name is Shelby and I am a Marquette nurse. Search Marquette direct entry MSN today. What is going on, Belly Up Sports fam? It is Mr. Shaka Cummings. It is Mr. Parker Ainsworth. Welcome to FN Sports, the podcast with two teachers, grade sports, biggest issues. Mr. Ainsworth, how are you doing on this fine Sunday afternoon? I'm doing okay, Mr. Cummings. Doing okay. Uh, trying to stay safe, and it's getting a little hot here in Texas. How are you doing? We actually ventured out of our house yesterday, so we went to go see a movie. Uh, things are opening up slowly but surely in Kentucky. I've gotten a haircut, so life is good, <laughs> um, <laughs> all things considered. Um, let's go ahead and do our gold stars and detentions. Mr. Ainsworth, you want to start with a gold star? Uh, my first gold star goes to, I think everyone could uh, pretty easily identify Greg Popovich as a gold star candidate for this week. Um, Greg Popovich has been outspoken on a lot of social issues and is pretty generally speaking on the very humanitarian and right side of things. Um, he apparently, based on the way the article by Dave Zirin goes, called up Dave Zirin, the reporter, and said, can you believe what's happening in the world right now? And Dave was like, what do you mean? And then Pop just like talked and just like went on a long, long monologue about all the things that are a problem in the world and, you know, 2020 and how like it stems from things like lack of leadership and stems from, you know, things like people being upset with the way the world's being, you know, they're being treated by the world and things like this and then the other. I thought it was interesting, though, that he focused so much on leadership because no one who's followed Greg Popovich's career would have any doubts that he knows a lot about good leadership. And so I thought it was interesting to have Popovich sit there and say, or be critical of leadership um, from a place where, you know, I think he has some authority. Um, so maybe Pop runs for 
office in 2024 or something like that. Who knows? Um, but Pop certainly, <laughs> certainly outlined what he thinks is wrong and was very outspoken. It's good to have people speaking out. My gold star for the week goes to folks who are allowing their actions to speak louder than maybe some of the social media advocacy that we've seen. Like nothing bothers me more <laughs> than people who kind of get on social media and take advantage of global situations and say, hey, this is what I believe. But then like I might know them personally. I know that not all their actions necessarily correspond to that. And so it's cool. You blacked out everything on Tuesday. That's awesome. But what are you going to do on Wednesday? Michael Jordan is donating $100 million over the next 10 years to organizations that are going to look at systemic racial inequity in our country and those systems and try to break them down. Matt Ryan, who is not someone that has been incredibly vocal necessarily via social media, is donating $500,000 to organizations that are looking at inequity and racial injustice. And Dak Prescott, in the middle of fighting to get like his money that he believes that he deserves in terms of his next contract, he's donating a million dollars. So he's looking at his personal situation and saying that this thing is so important that I got to make sure that everyone knows that I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is here. Well, not, not only is Dax 1 million a big chunk of what he has right now compared to like Jordan or, or to Ryan, but uh, it's certainly not a guaranteed thing that he's getting paid next year if he's currently just franchise tax. Nope, right? not, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the unfortunate nature of that business. He takes the wrong hit on the wrong play if he's really on the franchise tag. That's a million out of all the money he's going to make for rest, uh, the rest of his career. So that's, that's a big step. Uh, but as, as someone here in Dallas, I think that the city certainly appreciates having a guy that came at the front of it. Staying in Texas, you know, Prescott and Popovich, um, I, I've talked before on the podcast about how if it weren't for the University of Texas, I might not exist. I want to <laughs> shout out and give a gold star to Tom Herman and the uh, University of Texas football team. Um, you know, there, there's been a decade of mediocre at best football out of that town. Um, Herman had a pretty powerful statement to start this week. Um, he came out and said, you know, he said a lot of things I think people that don't look like Herman probably have felt, right? He talked about how like, you know, a lot of the Texas football fans will sit there and cheer, you know, 100,000 people will cheer on the University of Texas. How many of them will then go hire someone who looks like the guys on the field, uh, when it's time to hire a new executive or when it's time to let their daughter go date someone or when it's time to go, uh, he, he like vocalized a lot of those thoughts in his, uh, in an interview earlier this week and uh, then led the University of Texas football team. Lots of teams did marches across the country, um, but in in Austin, UT is interestingly also in the same city as, state, as the state capital. And so they marched from uh, DKR to the state capitol and went and you know did their kneel and then had everyone like gave everyone a chance to talk and then he, he kind of wrapped things up by saying you know he was always gonna be in his guy's corner and he's you know about change and about fixing things in austin and texas and so on awesome as you talk about kind of pride in the teams that you root for let me go ahead and give my detention for the week <laughs> <laughs> my detention goes to james dolan and I actually wavered as to whether or not I was going to give this detention to James Dolan. I talked to Parker about this off pod. It's like, how many times can I detention one guy? Like, <laughs> so, um, but he detentions for Tita every other episode. So I figure I get detention James I Dolan. I almost did it this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a 
there's been research that's been done about statements that have been released by NBA franchises around racial inequity and injustice. And at a certain point this week, there were only two franchises that hadn't actually released any official statement. The San Antonio Spurs, however, they have Greg Popovich, and as Parker alluded to, Greg Popovich has actually given statements. So it feels like while it hasn't officially come from the Spurs, it's come from them in the form of Popovich speaking on the behalf of the franchise and the Knicks. And <laughs> what comes out is that Dolan sends this memo, this internal memo to folks saying that, you know, basically the Knicks, we operate the way that we operate. We've always tried to operate in a form where folks feel comfortable and we folks feel like we're treating them appropriately. And we are not in a position to speak on social issues. Now, his franchise was begging for this. His fan base is begging <laughs> for this. So, New like, York City. <laughs> this is the people, the people who work around him are saying this is something we need to do. But he's the one who's saying, no, nah, we're not going to do it. It gets out, obviously, that he uh, released this internal memo. So then what does he do in response? Release another internal memo trying to clarify the first memo that was awful. So the second memo was still bad because you didn't do anything, right? <laughs> and here's the thing, guys. I challenge you. Go look at James Dolan's record in terms of hiring of African-Americans and of women over the course of his career as owner of the Knicks. And I challenge you to find the owner who has a record that says they are more about equity. Like, he hires black coaches, he hires black executives, he hires women in positions of authority in his franchise. And he doesn't do that because that's what's in fashion right now. That's what he's always done as the owner, which is why this is so ridiculous that he would go ahead and release a statement because his actions actually would match the words. Well, and it's really as simple as you're saying. His statement could have been, we're about action, not words, and been like, look at our Wikipedia page, or like, you know, something silly. Like, it really... Google it me, right? Yeah. That's what Shaq said, Google me. <laughs> Speaking of saying the wrong thing, my attention this week goes to Mike Norvell, the recently hired uh, Florida State head football coach. Um, you know, he had just been at Memphis recently, and he was really moving up to a Power Five, power five head coaching gig, right? FSU, he's getting off the ground there in Tallahassee. And he tells reporters uh, that, you know, in the wake of the unrest and the protest, he, he had, you know, reached out and contacted his players individually and talked to them and so on, to which he was responded to on Twitter by uh, <laughs> Marvin Wilson, defensive tackle Marvin Wilson, responding that that was bull poop emoji <laughs> that he had not heard he, they'd gotten some mass text but he had not heard anything from norvell personally nor more than the mass text um interestingly enough uh a you should not lie publicly about what you're saying to your players as a coach of any at any point right that's like, fair that's, that's fair only only gonna be like he could have just said you know I'm, I'm working through talking to them you know I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of them it's hard quarantine it's hard social distance i let them all know in a, in a, a group message that i'm feeling for them but he could have said any number of other things the other thing i'll say is uh, so those who don't know is I, I i coach in the same like larger conference and had to coach against marvin wilson in high school and marvin will marvin wilson had another lineman an offensive lineman in his uh graduating class that was also top 50 in the country the other you know marquee name that while you may not know lineman names that you may know is that there was a receiver 
in the er, in the class behind them listed as a receiver, but he really did everything. Uh, named Jalen Waddell, <laughs> who uh, who uh, lit up things like the Iron Bowl for Alabama this year. If you're watching Tua tape, pay attention to how many times he's looking for Jalen Waddell. I don't think, as new coach Mike Norvell, having seen and coached against a guy like Marv, I don't think it's wise to upset that guy because that guy's going to be playing on Sundays. <laughs> like that, that guy could very easily if he's he your turned best your locker room. <laughs> yeah, if he flips your locker room, you may never get it back before you even coach a game. It looks like that you know Marvin's statement came out. He's made a couple cents. It sounds like things may be going better in Tallahassee than they were before. But man, that's not a good way to start, especially in lieu of like having spring ball or anything. Like, ooh, Norvell, we need to fix that. <laughs> now, could you imagine if he just says, "You know what? Doing a supplemental draft, I'm leaving." Like, he could have just did that. He could have just said, <laughs> "Start up a supplemental draft. I'm going. I'm going to the NFL, and there's nothing you can do about it." Um, <laughs> we Completely, will talk. Like... We will talk quite a bit about uh, coaches in college football because that's one of our thesis statements. We're going to talk about the NBA and the fact that the NBA is going to start up and. We'll talk about whether that's a good thing or not. Uh, we'll talk about player empowerment amongst NCAA football players in this current atmosphere. And then we'll talk about how bad it could potentially be if there's no baseball this year due to COVID based on all the negotiations and things that we're hearing. So without further ado, Mr. Ainsworth, are you ready to go, sir? Ready when you are, Shaka. Okay, Mr. Cummings, our first thesis statement uh, also has to do with college football in the NCAA, actually. Uh, The thesis statement reads, the NCAA football will be irreversibly changed by the player empowerment we have seen over the last week. I think I'm giving that a D. So I'm going to go pretty low. Mr. Ainsworth, what are you thinking in terms of a grade? So I'm actually not far off. um, But it's really, I wonder if I'm hinging on a different part of the thesis as my problem. I'm going to give like a C minus because I do think things are changing, but I'm not sure about the last week. So I'm going to think I'm going to sit at a C minus because the kid's got a good idea, but I think he needs to change up his evidence. So, Okay, Mr. Cummings, you gave this thesis a D and didn't elaborate a whole lot, which implies that you were pretty solid in that D. Um, explain to us what this student, uh, we'll say student athlete because it's about college football, what this student athlete could have done to... <laughs> bring up their or brought out their grade or do revisions or something what do they need to do differently mr cummings uh the structure of the thesis references player empowerment over the last week and then taking that and extrapolating the player empowerment that we've seen over the last week to say that now college football is going to be irreversibly different there's a lot of like terms (laughs) that are in that thesis statement that To me, you have to start breaking down. As you start breaking them down, you realize, well, okay, maybe we're giving too much credit to this week, as well as thinking about irreversible change, right? So let's start with this week, that term. Player empowerment didn't start just this week. We forget about things like the University of Missouri's football team getting their president fired. The University of Missouri's football team in, I think it was 2017, basically said we will not do anything football related because of racial issues that go on on our campus that is not being addressed by the administration. So we ain't doing football till you fire the president. Two days later, the president resigned. That's player empowerment. (laughs) And that was well before this week. 
even if we go back to, I think it was, again, 2016, 2017, around that time, when Northwestern and their football players, or maybe it was the basketball players, it was Northwestern student-athletes tried to formulate some sort of a players' union in the NCAA. Like, we've seen player empowerment. We've seen guys like Ed O'Bannon fight to make sure that players get a piece of the revenue based on their image and likeness and things like video games and jersey sales. So we've seen player empowerment before this week, and we've seen it have some very positive effects for players in terms of getting the things that they needed. So when you say this week, that's one of the things I'm like, eh, that's probably a D. Then I start thinking about irreversible change. And so now I look at the situation that you talked about in Florida State with uh, Mike Norvell and his players calling him out, basically holding him accountable. I look at what's happened at Utah where a coach has been suspended for using a racial slur or in Iowa where former players are talking about the the culture of the Iowa football team or even like in, in small universities like the College of the Redlands, they, they have suspended their head coach. I think they're going to fire him for use of uh, racial slurs and players coming out and saying, we, we don't want to play for this guy. So now I look at things like that and I'm like, OK, maybe we're starting to see some change in terms of player empowerment. And then I look at the same thing happened at Clemson where players spoke out against an assistant coach who used a racial slur, and they reported it to the head coach, Dabo Sweeney, and felt like that wasn't handled very well. Okay, I don't know that it's changed anything for Dabo. I don't know that any statements have come out that would make anyone say, okay, Dabo's handling this situation differently than he handled it. I think it was four years ago, maybe three years ago, when it actually happened, he had the opportunity to handle it then. So, irreversible? I, I don't know. And then I look at some of the issues where players could be empowered and what we're going to see in terms of those issues. I think about things like the transfer rules. I think about things like athlete pay. And some of those things, we're definitely starting to see some movement, but I don't know that player empowerment necessarily caused that movement. There's just so many pieces that go into this thesis statement that caused me to begin to start asking questions. And the reality is I want to see the action more than the words, right? So you can say whatever you like or we could get reporting or whatever we want. I want to see what action results from those words. And then I can look at this week and then I can look at irreversible change. And I can start putting those things together. Um, what I think will be interesting is looking at the repercussions from this week for coaches like Mark Stoops or Tom Herman or Lane Kiffin or Jim Harbaugh, coaches who marched with their players in protests, in rallies around the country. Like when we look at those things, this could be interesting. Like I'm curious as to how those coaches marching with their players will impact recruiting for them. Because if we start to see a turn there, then we might start to see some irreversible change because if people are looking at this as a potential recruiting tool, then you might see some more coaches become a lot more active. The other piece that I'm looking at as well, and this isn't football related, but it's still college sports related. Mikey Williams, who's a guy who we've talked about before on this podcast, he's going to be the top player of the 2023 college basketball recruiting class. And very recently he was quoted as saying, you know what, going to an HBCU might not be a bad idea. Going to a historically black college or university it's might his, not be a bad idea. And I'm it's just, his pinned tweet right now. Yeah, he's pinned it to his Twitter. 
And so I'm just curious as to if things like this week will end up leading to players going to HBCUs. Like, then we'll start to see some definitive actions, and then we could probably go ahead and make uh, a real correlation. But right now, I'm just not prepared to do that. So that's everything that I've got, Mr. Ainsworth. What are you thinking? You you weren't that far off with your C-. minus. So talk to me about what no. you're thinking. I do think there's a natural movement in college sports happening. And so I, irreversible, I think I'm reading as more like it's going to continue to move. But I also hinge a lot of like the reason it's the C minus and nothing else and nothing higher is the idea that it's in the last week because I feel like there's been some movement towards player empowerment however slow it's been since Ed O'Bannon right since as far back as you want to talk um it's funny I'm, re- I'm reading a book right now about the prep to pro jump between high school and college kids and how Sonny Vaccaro was so instrumental in that in the 90s with Adidas and the ABCD camps and getting pro coaches to watch these high school kids and stuff. But people don't talk about a lot, this book does, about how Sonny Vaccaro had done work with getting Nike in the hands of colleges in the you know 70s and 80s and how his goal really then was he was getting Nike to the colleges so then all the college players would be wearing them so then they would be used to them or want them or like them or whatever, right, um, and make it desirable. And... All that is to say, not that we're doing a whole lot of sponsorship talk here, but this idea that college college athletes are much like the pros, they're just as marketable of people, right? You, you, there are human beings that you associate with brands and things like that. Just like that, I think we're seeing that extrapolated 40 years later, where college kids are now, just like brands are, saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not just a football player. I'm not just a you know point guard. I'm not just a picture or whatever right they're they're much larger than that and we're seeing them as much larger than that you don't think of the kid that's kicking the field goal at the end of overtime for your favorite college football team as just a kicker you also probably know about something personal from him will pop up across the screen or his major they may have a youtube channel a strong twitter following there's some humanity there as well all that is not to say that that makes them any more empowered though right that just makes them people and where I think that the trend is moving, though, is that you are seeing that turn into power because of things like being able to tweet out, as I gave my detention to Norvell. Marvin Williams can tweet out, this isn't right. And all of a sudden, this pro prospect at Florida State draws a lot of eyes. And it's an ESPN headline story. And all of a sudden, Mike Norvell is on the like, whoa, what's going on here? Why is he lying about his players, right? Um, you saw this week, you saw Clemson. I mean, you brought up several universities I want to point out as well. But... Clemson and their situation from a few years back has dabbled kind of under fire. You alluded to maybe Harbaugh or using these kind of things, you know, cleverly, or maybe this can become a recruiting tool. I think it's definitely a calculated way to go about recruiting kids. I think we talked about the Harbaugh letter he wrote a couple podcasts back. Go back and listen to that podcast if you want to hear our thoughts on that. Um, but Harbaugh, that's definitely a calculated move, right? He's like, oh, kids are wanting power, I can come out on their side and look more appealing. I also think that it's not from this last week, and that's why I gave it a C-, minus. but the way that transfers continue to be easier and easier to go through as a college athlete is important in the way that it gives the player power. Because while you are not paying the player or those kind of things like we, we all like, uh, them having a say in where they are, even if it's after their initial commitment, gives them power too, right? It gives them the power of saying, hey, 
I've been here at Clemson for two years, but now this really pissed me off, so I'm out of here. And all of a sudden, the program is built on players. Like, it's wins and losses. And so if those players all flee, if everyone on Clemson left because they were upset with Dabo, Swinney and win a whole lot of games next year. Like, they're, just, they're just not, right? If you got Trevor Lawrence to bounce, you'd be in a real big problem. Uh, <laughs> that's not from the last week. And so while I think it's important to note this past week as a part of all of this what I would go back and say is a longer, more like 40 or 50 year span of moving towards player empowerment. I don't think it's necessarily much more than, it's certainly a big week, but I don't think it's like because of this week by any stretch. So I want to throw a, maybe a little curveball at you. Maybe that'll adjust our thesis grades. What if we changed it from kind of this week being the crux to maybe this week being a turning point? So then that takes into account some things that have happened previously, maybe? Would that change how you thought about the thesis statement? Well, that, that's why I threw to you about, you know, how would you advise the student to revise it? Because I think that there are things that are good there. I think that there's a natural progression, like I've talked about over 40 or 50 years of college athletics, and that may be irreversible. I don't know that you can turn that train around once you start televising and marketing and making these people brands of sorts. Um, I think that that's a positive trajectory as far as giving them the power. And then if this is a, you know, if you're thinking about it as a book, if this is a big chapter in that book, or if this is, you know, a, a big part of the structure, right? If you think about like the, the Jenga logs and the, those kind of things, I, I don't know where it fits in necessarily, but I think certainly calling it a piece and not the piece, uh, it makes it a much stronger thesis because I do think it's important. Yeah, I think that my grade changes, if we look at it as a pivot point, like I can point to several pivot points, including the Missouri piece, including the Northwestern piece, you know, something that we didn't talk about because the thesis statement is specific to college football. But even, do you remember when, was it Shabazz Napier? I believe it was Shabazz Napier came out on Twitter and talked about like the NCAA food uh, allocation and he would go to bed hungry. And like right. two weeks later, they changed the rule about how much food these guys could get. So he like, was like player of the tournament, right? He like he, he had just been, yeah, he had I, just been like man of March or whatever they call you know player of the NCAA tournament, and he was like talking about how yeah, truthfully with the per diem, I was still hungry every night when I went to bed. And I was like, oh man, like he was on every television for a month. And the NCAA changed the rule in two weeks, like after he said yeah. that. So like you look at these different pivot points. And there's, there seems to be a lot of them. And I do think that this week has several of them, including the uh, Wilson Norvell piece at Florida State, which I think is pivotal. And I do think that the coaches marching is pivotal as well, where you asked about revisions, what I would want to see revised. And that's really the point that I was making with looking at how the, how will this impact recruiting? How will this impact where kids go? So in other words, when I look at this thesis statement, it's one that right now I can't really give you uh, concrete, feel good. I can't say that this is an A. That being said, if we analyze this in three years and we look at some of these coaches who marched and then we start to look at their recruiting classes, or if we start to see a kid like Mikey Williams, it doesn't even have to be that level of athlete. If we start to see other kids say, hey, listen, in terms of social context, I want to go to a historically black college or university because I feel like socially that when it comes to social justice issues, they're going to be more in tune with what I'm thinking, if we start to see some of those things happen, then, okay, now we can start to point back to these moments as maybe uh, pivotal moments because Mikey Williams tweets that out this week. We would be able to definitively trace that back.
Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, we are going to move on and talk a little bit of NBA because, friends, the NBA is coming back. <laughs> July 31st, it's looking like we're going to get some basketball. Uh, the thesis statement that I have, the proposed plan for the return of the NBA is the best plan for bringing basketball back during COVID-19. Mr. Ainsworth, I throw that thesis statement at you. You're like the biggest basketball fan I know, so I know what that grade's going to be, right? <laughs> I'm going to give it a C. I, so I, there's some things that I really think are very <laughs> A side of it and some things I really think are very F side of the proposal. So I, I'm going to settle in the middle at a C. Maybe we talk myself out of it over the course of our discussion. That's where I'm settling in right now. Where are you coming in at? You're pretty big. I mean, I know you're a Knicks fan. You made since the Knicks are done now until like January. What are you thinking about basketball coming back? Uh, I am also looking at this. This is a C thesis statement and – We'll talk about some reasons. I'm hopeful that we'll have some things that we disagree on. But the word best, that's a tough word, man. <laughs> that is a tough word. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, let's talk basketball. Let's talk NBA. You gave a C to basketball returning. Or actually, you gave a C to the thesis statement. The proposed plan <laughs> for the return of the NBA is the best plan for bringing basketball back during COVID-19. Let's talk about why you gave that thesis statement a C. Uh, so I, I guess there's parts of it that I like. Obviously, one of which is that we have basketball to watch and we have to finish the season of some sort or in some way and in some sort of a conclusive fashion. Uh, and that's certainly not lost on me. There's just also aspects of the way that they're coming back that I'm not necessarily a fan of. Um, it, it looks like a lot of basketball very condensed. Every team is going to play eight regular season games before jumping into the playoffs, and then a handful of the teams invited to play in Orlando in this you know bubble scenario are not going to make the playoffs. It's everyone within a handful of games of the eight seed playing for that eight seed, you know, jungling, jumbling, jumbling the playoff format a little bit. Um, and then going into the playoffs for those eight games. Those eight games are taking place in a period of 16 days, um, which is fun for us as viewers, but it could very well lead to some very tired basketball players by the end of the two weeks. Um, <laughs> you then jump into the playoffs, and they're sticking with seven-game series uh, to try and keep some of the integrity of the results afterwards, I guess. Um, but again... They're looking at uh, the NBA Finals because that's the only one they can guarantee things for, right? Uh, will be played on an every-other-day format. So you have to imagine that unless they have to condense something else, they'll also play all of the other games on an every-other-day format. It's just it's all, it's all very, very collapsed on one another, and I think that's really, really too close. Uh, there's been articles written, you know, back when we were first learning about intentional rest and players taking days off during the regular season, and Popovich was kind of at the front of that with the Spurs. Uh, LeBron and had his own fair share, uh, you know, early Miami run. And then, uh, you know, I guess there are a lot of people doing it now, but Kawhi is probably the most famous guy for load managing these days. I think it's important to note that when all of that research was first being done back in the late, you know, 07, 08, 09 era of basketball, people were looking at a playoff game as the kind of impact on your body of three or four regular season games. When they're talking with trainers about, you know, the amount of tape and, getting your body ready before the game and extra warming up and extra tweaking and extra stretching and then breaking it down after the game and making sure you're recovering and those kinds of things. Um, it really, I think, 
is a lot of basketball on these guys' bodies for a two-month span. I don't necessarily know that you could have done it without, like, to make it easier on their bodies and more normal on their bodies. If you could, you'd have had taken out the regular season games, you'd have probably had to shorten some of the series, which would have dismissed teams from making, you know, the shot of making the playoffs. I, I think that that would have been difficult. And so this seems to be somewhat trying to keep up the integrity of the result of this shortened, you know, last part of the season. But I, I just, I think that there's some potential problems there with what we're going to see on the product. You're either going to have guys that are just exhausted and the basketball may not look great on, you know, those game sixes and sevens of the Western Conference semis and Eastern Conference finals and so on may not be the best basketball. I'd argue game seven of the finals is honestly always interesting to watch as a purist too when it's not your team because those dudes are always dog tired, super nervous, and there's always like this like it's never great basketball. People forget like game seven 2016 when you had the Cavs come back and they down up down three one come back and win the series blah, blah blah. Like the Kyrie shot happens with a lot of time left. The block from LeBron happens with a lot of time left. There just wasn't scoring after that. <laughs> like Absolutely. Um, they're they're really you know that's and that's in a regular format and so I think that there's an interesting you know interesting to see it will be interesting to see how this all plays out in impacting their bodies and the product on the floor. You also gave it a C though, so what what held you back from giving it a better grade? Yeah, I gave it a C. I am happy that basketball is coming back, as we both pointed out. I love that the plan includes a regular season and a postseason. So, like, I think this is better than just coming back and doing the playoffs, right? Which is some of the things that were considered. Um, I also love that the NBA found a way, and I know the NBA loves <laughs> that they <laughs> found a way to get Zion into this thing because we didn't get enough of him during the regular season. And we're getting our stars, like LeBron, Greek Freak, Kawhi, John Morant. We're getting some of those highlight guys, right? And, yeah, I get it. The Knicks aren't in it, and – the Knicks weren't in it like the Knicks were in it all season. So, um, so those are definitely good things. There's a lot of things that worry me and I want to start with player safety and COVID because the NBA is not releasing the plan about how they're going to test and deal with COVID and positive uh, cases and those sorts of things. The NBA is intentionally keeping that private, which I'm hopeful that there is a plan. Like, I believe that the NBA has one. I'm wondering if they feel like it's lackluster in some ways, which is why they're not releasing it. Or if there's still things that they haven't considered, but they wanted to make sure that we're definitely going to have a season and they still haven't considered some stuff, but at least we know they're going to have a season. Now they're going to think about these things. We know the deadline spur action, but it, that that's worrisome to me that we would use a deadline to spur action in this case. Like, we want to make sure that the safest things are done, especially considering that there's going to be like 1,600 people that are involved in this thing. Like, that's the number that's going on around the internet in terms of the NBA and how many people they're going to bring to the bubble city that is going to be Orlando and Disney around this event, trying to uh, come back and finish up the NBA regular season. That's a lot of people. That's families. That's assistant coaches and coaches who are older. Like, there's a lot of people who are involved in this thing. And so, obviously, I just want to make sure they're doing everything to ensure that all those folks are safe because it feels like a lot of people are at risk if this thing hits the fan. And so that's the piece that I get at first that makes me say, ooh, low grade. You also brought up the idea of player safety and of safety of surrounding COVID. I think that the interesting thing there is, is this talk about 
um, A, the players, and B, the coaches, and what we don't know what happens when either one of them gets it. I think we just saw, you know, in the in you know people and players being involved in protests in the last week, fifty players from University of Alabama went to protest in the first week of protesting across the country at the last you know period of protesting, and within a week, five of those fifty tested positive for COVID. Now it looks like a few days later, like they're doing fine and they may have even been asymptomatic and whatnot. But that's ten percent, right? And so, like, what I guess I wonder is like, obviously, this is much more bubbled than a protest, and so these players be much more separated. But it's obviously still spreading. I live here in a city in Dallas. The numbers are still on the rise, right? Um, regardless of if the state's opening up or not, things are still on the rise. And I, you know, I read more and more, frankly, for both things like this and for my own like mental awareness of what's going on in the world about what the consequences, what the likelihoods in these things are. And they're saying that there's even a chance that an asymptomatic carrier could have some serious lung damage afterwards, right? Not necessarily that they'll never be able to like talk again, but like some like noticeable lung damage. Well, an asymptomatic carrier in the NBA is using their body to make money for the rest of their, like they're trying to make money in their NBA career to last them as long in their life as possible, right? And so like, what do they do if 25-year-old Giannis gets it. But what happens if one of these older coaches gets it? Or if, you know, an older assistant coach or, or what like I or someone working the TV cameras or, or like whatever it is. You know, I think that there's a lot of that that could happen that we're not hearing about in this plan. And I think, you know, you brought it up a second ago. I think that's a big, big hesitation as well, aside from just the product on the court, is it's not all out there for us. I also am not a fan of the way they're handling this eight seed. So um, 22 teams, uh, 13 of them are Western Conference, nine of them are Eastern Conference. And here's how it's going to work for the eight seed. If at the end of these eight regular season games that they're going to use to kind of wrap up the season, if there's any team within four games of the eight seed, they're going to be put into a play-in tournament, which means that in the Eastern Conference, you really are going to only have two teams because it can only be the 8th and the ninth that will get involved in this thing. In the Western Conference, however, there's 13 teams. So you can have a lot more, obviously, than two that get involved in this if they're within four games, which means you got an inequity there that you can't balance out. There's no way to do it based on the structures of the playoffs. And so to me, to handle that in such an unequal way, I don't know. It feels like there may be some sort of advantage. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out, but I don't like it. Like, that's my gut. There's still a couple of things as well that I want to talk about that are negatives to me. And something that's come out a lot over the last week, like, how are you going to manage seeding advantages in these playoffs? Because there's no home court. Everyone's playing on the same courts. And, like, I heard people saying things like, fly your hardwood in from your city. Like, are we serious with that? Like, I don't. That's not an advantage, and that's kind of a waste of resources. Let's not let's not go crazy. But is there a way to actually create an advantage for Milwaukee and the Lakers and the Clippers and Toronto and these teams that remember they played sixty two games when the world was kind of normal? Like, let's not forget right. about those guys and the advantages that they've earned over well over three quarters of the season. So um, I don't know what they're talking about in terms of playoff advantages, but I definitely think that that's something that needs to be considered. And then the last thing that I want to talk about as well, that we have to think about with this, because we're going to have this season and it's starting on July 31st, there's a potential 
that Game 7 of the NBA Finals, according to CBS Sports, could be played on October 12th. Do you know when they're talking about bringing in training camps for the following season? They're talking about bringing the training camps in November 10th. So you would have less than a month from Game 7 to the training camp to start the next season. Because it, it not just, so that's a month for two teams to get ready, but you also can't start free agency until after those two teams are done playing. So it's a month to do the lottery, the, you know, the draft and free agency and training camp and like, and get everything ready to go. Um, that's just not a lot of time off. I get that they've just taken a couple months off. Although, you know, you see players with the abilities to have been working out the whole time. That it's like you're saying, that's going to detract from the product itself. And they're talking about trying to start the season in early December. That's still super, super fast. That's a, you know, even if you want mid-December to mid-October, that's just a couple of months. And that's not, I mean, that's a big difference between the normal early June to end of October timeline that we're used to having for the NBA offseason. I, I just, I don't know how that, that how that's the best scenario, but that seems to be the way they're going to go. Okay, Mr. Cummings. Our last thesis statement for this week is about Major League Baseball. The thesis statement reads, Major League Baseball would be stupid to allow a disagreement over money to prevent them from playing baseball in 2020. All right, Mr. Cummings, how do you grade that thesis? So I'm going to go ahead and give that an A. And I know it sounds hypocritical, but I promise you, <laughs> I promise you as we talk about it, at least you'll understand what my perspective is. Um, Mr. Ainsworth, I'm curious, what what grade are you going to give to that thesis statement? Oh, I've been all over the C range today, so maybe I'll give this a higher C, like a C plus, as opposed to my earlier grades today. But I, I, I just I I see a player side of this too, and so I don't know which side I want to go with. So I'm, I'm going to give it a higher C, and that's my final answer. Okay, Mr. Cummings. So you gave this thesis about Major League Baseball being stupid if they don't come back this year, an A. So I got to ask, what had you so excited about it? Yeah, I went with an A, and <laughs> we talked about Blake Snell, and we talked about players who have specifically brought up their money, and I am on their side, by the way. You should try to make as much money as you possibly can, and if owners are not going to be forthright with giving you information about the economics – then there's no reason to trust that the owners are on your side in terms of making sure that you get the most money that you could possibly get. When I look at that thesis statement, I think that it doesn't matter what reasoning you put in. If there is no baseball in 2020, it's stupid, and I'm probably going to give it an A. Now, in this case, we talked about money. But if you replace it and said COVID, I would still give it an A. I understand the disagreement about money, right? Which is the players have already taken a pay cut based on the fact that games are not being played right now. And they know that their salary is going to be prorated based on the number of games that they play, regardless of when they start playing. What players don't want is a second pay cut because on top of that, Major League Baseball put in these uh, pieces so Major League Baseball rolls out this plan to play someone in the neighborhood of 80 games where if you were supposed to make $35 million this year, you're going to end up making $7.3 million, which obviously is a pay cut on top of your prorated salary already. Right. And so players are not interested in that. And so I get them wanting to argue. And I also get that this all sets up the fights that they're going to have 
once the new collective bargaining agreement for baseball is something that's ready to be negotiated, right? They're setting the stage for fights that they're going to have to have the labor strife, that labor tension that comes with negotiating a collective bargaining agreement. And so everything's collectively bargained in baseball. Baseball players have an incredibly strong union. All of those things I understand. And here's what I go back to. Number one, people want baseball. And I get that that feels superficial, but when you are baseball and you are clearly, I would say at this point, the third of the major sports in the United States, it matters that people want to see you because you should take advantage of this opportunity and maybe you would get some folks back. Let's go back to the last time that Major League Baseball canceled some baseball, which is 1994. Before 1994, if you look at the ratings for the World Series, you regularly would see that the World Series would do a 20 rating, which means that 30 million people were watching the Major League Baseball World Series. Post-1994, which is the year that there was the strike, and so we had no World Series. Post-1994, they've only done that 20 rating one time, and that was in 1995, the year immediately following. So now... The ratings for the World Series, like, they'll take a double-digit rating. If they could get a 10, that'd be awesome. But they're, they they normally are somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 in the last 10 years or so, the last decade or so, which tells you something about the response to 1994. Like, people don't want to come back when you got rid of baseball. And so if you're in this environment where people are actually craving the game and maybe you get some folks to come back, that feels like something that would be really good for baseball. I also worry about the fact that you got players who I believe want to go play. Like, the players want to figure this out. So if the majority of your players are like, hey, let's find a way, I don't understand why you wouldn't try to find a way, right? Let's also find a way to make sure that you do something for your minor league systems because I realize that, like, there's owners who are going to use this to kind of basically condense the minor leagues into something that doesn't look like what we're used to with minor league baseball. And there's a lot of those guys who aren't making the same money that these major leaguers are. So if they miss out on a season, that might be their career in terms of baseball. And I just, I have a layer of sympathy for those guys who want to come back and play. Like, can we find a way to bring them back? Now, baseball has several different plans that are out there. It seems like the owners are wanting to play fewer games because the more games that they play, they're saying to the players that they would lose almost $700,000 playing games in empty stadiums. And the players are like, well, share the economics with us because we need to see this data. And the owners are like, well, we're not going to share that data with you. And the players are like, well, we're not going to take a second pay cut. And now the owners are agreeing to prorate to just do a prorated salary, but then they only want to play 50 games. And the players are like, what are you talking about? We want to play like 100 games. So there's a lot of stuff that has to be done. I think that they're better, they're better off playing baseball because we saw in 1994, baseball has never recovered from 1994. And if they don't play baseball this year, then you're going to have, I think, incredibly negative consequences for Major League Baseball based on 2020 as well. So I think they need to play. So I come at it from a couple angles, I, you know, and I gave it a high C because I think you're right in a lot of ways that baseball is slowly dying in, in, in the United States because it's just not the same kind of entertainment as basketball or football or whatever, right? And so the idea that they would just take a year off is probably bad for business, right? Um, it's probably bad for business in a number of ways, but one is like, 
the truth is that just means people are going to find their local hockey team or watch more cornhole or, or whatever, right? Um, I, <laughs> I think I, I think that the deal is is that it it's slowly dying, and it would just kind of expedite that process a little bit. But the thesis talked about it would be stupid to let an argument over money be the reason that they don't come back. And I think that that's actually a very valid reason for players to be like, whoa, 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 listen, we've taken enough pay cut, we're not doing this. I I, I think that they have every right to ask for the dollars that they signed a contract for. Um, And I I think that they're, you know, obviously this is going to hit everyone differently. And obviously people are going to come back to this podcast and say, oh, Ainsworth siding with the millionaire athletes, blah, blah, blah. Like, yes, they signed contracts to use their bodies to play baseball and make a bunch of money and call me silly, that contract ought to mean something, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't think that's crazy. I also think that there's an interesting aspect of baseball that doesn't get talked about a lot like this. Um, part of the reason baseball is popular regionally but not nationally is, I think, in large part has to do with when the games are played. We look at this vast, you know, emptiness of summer, and the, the ratings tend to dip on summers that there are summer Olympics. I mean, it, you're sitting here watching baseball in the summertime because post-NBA finals, you don't have a lot going on until NFL preseason. And so you got a lot of people sitting around watching baseball because it is sports, it is regional, it is my team. Like, you're a New York guy, so you got the Yankees, right? And I'm a, a Houston guy. We got the Astros, and LA's got the Dodgers, the Bay's got the Giants, PNW's got... Seattle, you got all these different people have their regional teams and they fall in love with it. It's a regional sport in so many ways because it's what you do in the summertime when there are no other sports. Any comeback plan now is going to put them right in the smack dab middle of all of these other sports. We just talked about how the NBA is coming back at the end of July and how the NFL, we talked about a couple weeks back, has not made any plans to change their season, right? Uh, college football, they're trying to find ways to get the kids back to play this fall. Like, their season, even if shortened and stacked on top of one of those, and the doubleheaders here and this, then the other, like, it's going to be running into these other sports obstacles that they don't normally have to. And I think that's going to hit them more negatively than they realize. If they're trying to, you know, if they're going to fight for TV deals and stuff like this in the shortened season, or they're going to fight to keep their TV deals in the shortened season, and however they keep that legally speaking, they're going to be going up against very literally five NBA games a day, like five meaningful playoff level basketball NBA games a day. That doesn't seem to bode well for me for baseball. And I think the players are sitting here saying, we're going to come out here and get potentially sick. We don't know the state's precautions. We don't know what's going to happen. We're already taking, like you said, a percentage pay cut because we're playing so many less games anyway. We agreed to that at the start of whatever, blah, 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 right? And now we're going to sit here and do all this to be in a season that no one's even watching? Like, I think that they have every right to sit here and say, I need my money, man. I'm not just going to show up here for nothing. Um, I, I think that that makes total sense. Obviously, I gave it a C plus and not an F, or not because I think that there is some aspect of needing baseball back. Like, I do think that those regional markets need their baseball. And there are diehard baseball fans, and there are people that are sitting in their living rooms, literally scoring every game as it happens. Like I, I get that those people are not gone, they're just fading, but there still are those people, and that this can you know, provide some normalcy or some distraction or some escapism. There's also entire economies based on the idea that baseball is happening, uh, both on television and in person, and I get all of that. I just, I think that it is okay for them to be arguing for their money 
And I don't think that makes them stupid to have this argument over money in the middle of it. Except if they don't play, they don't get any money anyway, right? Do you you know what I'm saying? So, like, if there's no season, there's no money for those guys. So you got to play in order to get paid, and no season means no pay. So if you say, I'm going to not... That's a normal striker's argument, though, right? It's we're not going to show up and work until the working conditions are improved. Well, you're not going to get paid for not showing up to work either. That's just a normal strike, right? I get that, but this isn't a strike. <laughs> this no, is, no, no, no. But this I, is I'm global saying functionally, pandemic. right? Functionally, though, it's that's what they're saying. We're not showing up to work until X, Y, Z is met or until our contract is upheld. Yeah, but I mean, they're not saying okay, COVID's unsafe. They're saying pay us the money. Like I guess I don't know. 1994, the perception was millionaire players. You guys are bad because you're striking for more money. And I think that what will end up happening in 2020 is they'll say, millionaire players, you guys are bad because there's a global pandemic and we want to get a sense of normalcy and you guys can help with that. And now you're not doing it because you need to make more money. I want everyone to make as much money as possible. So I am not knocking the players for fighting for as many dollars as they can get. I think about the future of baseball and I just think it would be awful for them. It would be really dumb if this season isn't played because solely because money. I wish that the players would talk more about COVID, frankly, and what those what those uh, regulations will be when they come back, because I think that's more understandable. But let me say this. I think if they solely lost the season based on COVID, they would end up having really negative consequences as well, because other sports are coming back in the midst of this. So I, think, I just think that baseball is in this uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. They got to play, because if they don't play, they're already – losing fans in that young demographic, right? The, what is it, 20? The big demographic is like 25 to 49. And I think they're losing fans in that demographic, as well as the fact that the ratings simply bear out. People aren't watching baseball as much as they used to. So it's like, you got to come back. You got to figure this out. You can't, you can't kill your own sport. And they're already trying to kill off minor leagues and those sorts of things. And I, but if the sport, if the sports already dying and the guys are like, look, I signed this contract for this money. This thing is dying. I'm getting my money before this thing. Like, I don't think that that's a a silly argument. I don't think that, but if baseball goes bankrupt, you're not getting your money anyway. Mike Trout, like it doesn't matter what you sign for. (laughs) Like you can't get blood from a turnip. You can sign for 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 $40 million. If I've got $40 million, what do you want me to do? I can't pay you. The thesis says it's stupid for them to let the season end if it's because of arguing about money. I don't think that them arguing about money is stupid. That, that's what I'm trying oh, to say. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't think yeah. that, that – so those are two different points. I don't think that arguing about money is stupid. They should argue says, for the money that they want. But if you don't right. play this season and it's only because you couldn't figure out the dollars and cents, then that's dumb. It actually hurts everyone. It doesn't just hurt – like you're arguing for more money. You'll never get your money because baseball will die. If you don't play this season, that's the potential that could happen. So isn't it worth it to find a way to make this happen so that not only this year can you get a little bit of money, but in this to the future, you know that your sport is healthy and strong. And I think there's a potential for baseball to position themselves to be more healthy and strong after this. I know that you said going up against basketball might be a bad thing. And I get that it. It probably isn't necessarily the best scenario, right? Baseball would probably like to be the only sport that's out there, but baseball there's Americana with baseball. Opening day is big in this country. And I think that there's a way for baseball to position themselves in a comeback to say, hey, 
we are hoping to signal to this country that we can unify in lots of different ways in which the country kind of needs it and you could do it around this game and i think that if they could market themselves and position themselves in that way that would be great for them long term in terms of the health of the sport friends that is another episode of f in sports we talked quite a bit about baseball, basketball, football. So we hit on all the big sports, right? So we did everything that we needed to do. Don't tell me that there's no sports. There's always sports. Uh, Mr. Ainsworth, <laughs> you want to hit folks with your socials? Yeah. So if you want to give me a hard time this week of getting a bunch of C's, besides knowing that I will point out that that keeps them eligible, uh, <laughs> go ahead and reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Painsworth 512 That's at P-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H-P, Ainsworth 512 uh, on Twitter or Instagram, uh, I respond pretty quickly to Twitter, especially in the summer social distancing, whatever you want to call it. We also have a show or podcast uh, Twitter that's at FN Sports Two F I N S P O R T S the number two, all one word on Twitter. I'll respond with dash P A. Uh, Mr. Cummings will respond with dash C C, and we can get back to you if you have any questions, comments, or anything about the segments or other theses. If you have other theses you'd like to see explored, uh, let us know. Absolutely. We also have a podcast Instagram uh, at F underscore N underscore sports. So you can definitely check us out there. Uh, We do some previews of pod episodes there. So definitely feel free to uh, subscribe uh, or uh, follow us. Check us out there. And then I have my own personal Uh, Twitter and Instagram at Shaka Cummings at C-H-A-K-A-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S. So please feel free to follow there. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of FN Sports. Like, subscribe, share, do all those wonderful things that help out the pod. And please remember, when it comes to sports, don't flunk with us. Later, guys. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Buy four tires and get up to $200 in savings after rebate at Bell Tire's year-end sale. Or get even more in Bell Tire gift cards, December 26th through January 7th. Plus, get tires as low as $49 after rebate. Get up to $200 in savings. Or get even more in gift cards, December 26th through January 7th. Get up to $200 in savings and choose the lowest tire price, period, at Bell Tire. 100 years of getting folks safely back on the road fast and affordably. See store or belltire.com for details. Restrictions apply.